This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. We are so excited to share something new we've been working on. We have now launched the Enneagram 8 community. This is a community where Enneagram 8s can come together to feel seen and heard for the heart of who they are, a place where you can just be you. If you're interested in joining us here, go to the Enneagram8community.com to sign up. Samantha, her eight was certainly never in doubt, and frankly, neither was the six. But we do certainly try to allow each of our eights to self-identify, and so when she claimed the two, I certainly was going to give it a fair hearing. However, I do very much have a bit of a superpower of recognizing the four inside of people. It calls to me almost more distinctly than even the eight does. And so at about the midpoint in this interview, I tell Samantha that I'm pretty sure there's four in there or that she sounds an awful lot like me. At the end of the interview, Samantha gives us an update that would allow me to employ the I told you so if I was the kind of person that did that. But I'm not, so I won't. She is now much more confident in identifying as an 846. It's actually pretty important that you hear how necessary it is to wrestle through some of this stuff. It's not as straightforward as you think. And Samantha gives a really good example of how a little bit of time, a little bit more self-awareness and reflection can get you there if you just keep pushing through. Hey. Hello. Hey, are you Samantha or Sam? Either one. Sam is fine. Even when I introduce myself as Samantha, most people shorten it to Sam naturally because that's just kind of how my personality is. So Sam is completely fine. <laughs> Maybe that's why I do it in my head. I'm like, she's a Sam. I am definitely a <laughs> she's Sam. She's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> we totally want to do an off-record interrogation about your boyfriend. Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> so tell us the goods. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty open. I don't really care if you tell us anything. <laughs> No, it's going great. It's it's been really fun. When you guys message me, we play tennis almost every morning as like a fun little quarantine activity that's like outside and active. And so we had just gotten back from that. It's been a couple months now. And um, he's just kind and patient and sweet and adorable. And it's been really, really wonderful. We're really trying to nail down the difference between two and three. Uh And now that you've dated, you've been dating him for a while. Do you have any insight into that? I feel like a big difference is the two and the three probably share a lot of imposter syndrome, but I think the twos, it's more imposter syndrome of, am I doing enough for other people that they see the identity that I want them to see versus the imposter syndrome that I see him with is, am I doing enough to have my own identity? You know, like the twos, like they love to do other things, but they love to be acknowledged for it. They don't want like profuse over the top appreciation but they have no problem taking credit for something that they want credit for whereas i've noticed with liam like he can't accept compliments at all (laughs) (laughs) but you can praise him for like 10 minutes and tell him that he's you know he's a um trombone player like a a classical musician Mm -hmm. and so he'll play like a 10 minute you know symphony piece or something like that and it'll be absolutely beautiful and you can praise him for like 10 minutes equally and he he won't say thank you once and it's not to be rude it's because he's so so accustomed to deflecting compliments because nothing is good enough to his standard that he doesn't feel like he deserves praise for it oh that makes sense they are so hard on themselves they have not hit the mark that they're aiming for which is the highest mark exactly yes 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 
No, I've begun to like uh, get a bit of a feel for them and they're, they're really warm. Like I find them quite yes. warm to be around and quite easy to be around. It's easy to be around because I really like threes. My, one of my best friends is a three too, and they just match my energy so well. Yeah. I never feel like my intensity or my energy is too much for them. This isn't just because I came from playing tennis, but it feels like a tennis match. Like anything I hit at them, they'll hit it right back to me. I find them actually authentic. So people's vibe of them being, you know, like performing to suit. It's not what you think it is. So Erin um, has recently discovered her tri-type <laughs> is actually has a three in it. And she wasn't happy about it. <laughs> no, I actually think my daughter is a three. And my daughter looks like she's not authentic all the time. But what she's doing is she's just trying to make everyone around her comfortable. Mm -hmm. This is actually very authentic. And it's funny because the threes are also so in tune with energy. It's, you know, we as eights pride ourselves in being able to read people and understand what they're not showing us. And I feel like threes can do the same thing. So they can pick up and they can be that chameleon in the room and pick up on like what energy are people giving them? So what do they want to see from them yeah. as kind of a lack of like their own identity? But yeah. they also have because they can tell like what those vibes and what that energy is. There, I've also found that threes, even more so than other eights, are the ones that can call me out for being fake. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, they're always the ones yeah. that are like, girl, who are you kidding? Like, yes. get your stuff together. The threes in my life that I know, they're the ones that can really show me back to me and be enough of a mirror to be like, girl, who are you kidding? You know what they're really sensitive to? They're really sensitive to our tough act. So when we do that, they really, really aren't impressed, first of all, by yeah. it. I find they just give me a look. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny you say that because I, and this is going to get really mushy really quickly. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> I think that's probably the most special part of the relationship that I'm in right now is that being an eight, there's so many, you know, tough guy stories that I look back on that I used yeah. to think were really funny to tell at parties or they were like, yeah, ha ha this is me like this is my tough exterior these are all the things that I can do and he's so not impressed by any of it and I no. realized that it's that's yes. somebody that he's never met because he's never had to meet that person like this is a place where I can be the soft squishy tender person yeah. and I've never had to put up that tough guy front and yeah. so not only is it not amusing and not funny to him but he's like I don't even relate because I don't even know who this person you're describing is even though to me like I thought that that was a really like funny hyperbolic you know reflection of me and my like feisty personality and he's like I don't even know who this person is actually the first time a three kind of looked at me and said why do you do that just stop doing that you don't need to do that. My typical response was to get my back way up and just assume like they couldn't hack it or something. Mm -hmm. And instead, what she was saying is it's that's just not you. Yeah. Which is ironic that threes are the ones that make us be authentic when that's like their crux. But <laughs> <laughs> the term they often use is mirroring like yeah. threes mirror. Mm -hmm. And it means that they're showing you who you really are, which means that by default, they actually know who you really are. Yeah. But they might so, not necessarily be in tune to what, who what they, they are. are. That's yeah. What yeah. Yeah. They can't do that for themselves, but they can sure as heck do it for other people. Okay. All right. Enough about three. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't the three podcast. <laughs> Tell us who you are. Who is Sam? Oh Just my goodness. quick bio. See, this is my problem. If you put me in an English class and you say write about anything, the paper will stay blank. And you give me like a very specific direction, I'll write novels. I am you say so tell me anything, I'll do it be blank. Yeah. Okay, well, who am I? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am a, an 
athlete. I am a teacher. I am somebody who is very, very passionate about movement. I am finishing currently my master's degree in kinesiology, starting my doctorate of physical therapy this summer at the University of Colorado. And I'm somebody that is very, very passionate about movement, about science, about the pursuit of knowledge and making it accessible to the everyday person to be able to understand and have gratitude for their bodies and all the things that it can do. I am somebody who is a very deep well slash ocean of my own, I guess, you know, emotions and feelings that I try to navigate a lot. I am an advocate. I like to, obviously, as an aide, I like to fight for the underdog. I like to volunteer for various organizations. I just love to help people. How did you find out you were an eight? I had done a quiz and it said eight. And naturally, the way that a lot of quizzes describe the eight, I really didn't (laughs) connect with it very much. Join the club. Yeah, because I think a lot of quizzes out there like really paint us as power hungry monsters and tyrants. And I was like, I understand how maybe in my most unhealthy state, I could get like this, but like, this is most of the time, not me. I think what clinched it was going around pages like on Instagram and just seeing like the descriptions of different things relating to a lot of the humor on like some of the meme pages. What fully cinched it was when I read the subtype of a social eight, because I had resonated a lot with much of the eight content that I had seen, but I've never had a significant issue with vulnerability. I've never not been in touch with emotions. I don't usually think of myself above others. Like I said, I'm somebody that's very much, I try to be of altruistic service as much as I can. And so like really one of my biggest drivers in life is, you know, how many people can I help? What kind of a positive impact can I make on others? what can I do? And so although I've always been somebody that's very, um, you know, I know my boundaries, I know how to take care of myself, I will make sure that my needs are met before I open that up. But at the same time, I'm very oriented toward other people around me. And so that was some of the disconnect that I had seen in a lot of the eight content was that vulnerability, that kind of self preservation, not necessarily in subtype, but just as a tendency that I didn't really connect with. And then I, I, like I said, I read the social eight description and went, Oh, my gosh, ding, 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 ding. This is me. And then the more that I looked into that specific niche, the more I realized that this is absolutely me following some of these other pages. And then especially when I hear you two talk about, you know, the different histories and getting deeper into that, like core meaning of some of these experiences. And I think you had talked about in one of your episodes, the nurture versus the protector in childhood and like missing one of those and trying to basically just cut it off and then supplement with the rest. And those things really, really resonated with me. My tri-type more aligns with the stereotype. You can start to see that the textbooks are definitely identifying certain tri-types as the stereotype. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to do this because some of you really just don't quite fit that, but you're still eights, right? So it has to be accounted for. In your tri-type, you actually have two super egos. So two and six, they're like almost like an alpha structure. And you have two of them, which means they're kind of at war with each other. Mm -hmm. So it means your tri-type, it really, maybe more than some, is not just one thing. It's a few major things kind of warring a little bit with Mm -hmm. each other. And that makes you not fit in a tidy way. Whereas some of us have two types that kind of amplify each other because they go in the same direction Mm -hmm. a little bit more. 
So when you read Catherine Fogra's quote about 826, if you are an 826, you're caring, supportive and protective. You want to be helpful, engaging and straightforward. By nature, you want to be in charge of your world and you're attracted to the noble cause. You wish to shield others from harm and will challenge what is unjust. You want to know what the rules are in order to feel safe and to know when you can break them. Actually, I think that that's pretty accurate, at least how I see myself. And I recognize that a lot of eights, we are seen in a much different way than we see ourselves, which I think adds to a lot of that disconnect and misunderstanding of us. But at least in the way that I see myself, I think that that's pretty on the nose. I am driven to help other people. And I understand that my role in that can be the strong one or the protector or the teacher or whatever that needs to be to help other people. And I really love having that role. How do you love- feel about the nickname, the rescuer? I don't think that in an A26 tri-type that we're trying to rescue other people. We're trying to help them rescue themselves. And I think rescue is a little extreme. Does it feel better when you say empower them? I was going, I was literally just about to say, I feel like a better term would be like the empowerer. The empowerer would be better because we really are there to help. And we're trying to show other people the strength that they have. And we're trying to model the qualities and supplement what they need to help themselves in whatever way they need. And it's not, not to do em- it for them. Yeah. And it's and not be the to hero. And I actually got into a little bit of, I'm not going to say a tiff, but like I commented on, I think it was the empathy architects that they're doing this little de- diving deeper, the, the fine details of the Enneagram. They had said something about how eights kind of impose their will and they just want, they, we don't hold ourselves to any real moral standard, but we arbitrarily hold other people to the moral standard that we set. And I took a lot of offense to that. And I think it's kind of in the same way with the term, the rescuer, it kind of suggests that we have this structure or this outline or model that we're trying to fit other people into into what we think is best for them, which absolutely is not true. I recognize, at least for myself, that what's best for other people 99% of the time is not what's best for me. And there's a lot of times that I would do something differently than them, or I would rather they do something else. But if it's going to get them to where they need to grow, or it's going to help them recognize what they need to do to grow, it's a lot of think, Sam, that sometimes you might be more in tune with what they need than they are. Yes. But that also gets me into hot water a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I have a very hard time meeting people where they're at because I see their potential. And I know I know how to get them there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all and have that a little I'm bit. I'm like, I can't do that because I need to meet them where they're at. <laughs> yeah. I think meeting them at their, where they're at is is the growth path, right? Yeah, and that's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it though? <laughs> um, have you put a lot of thought into how you would put into words using your thinking center like a six? What was it about six that felt like home base in terms of how you use your your intellect and your thinking? I think it's because I am somebody that likes to look for contingency plans. My partner always says that I am a problem solver because I like to step back, take a look at the entire field, see what problems arise, simultaneously try to set up or fix any potential problem that can happen before we start. So that way, if something does go awry, we know how to attack it. I think I really resonated with that part of the sixth, especially the counterphobic six, where it's like, I am not in fear of what's going to happen, but I want to put, like I said, contingency plans or problem solver fixes in place before they happen for any problem that might happen. Typically, sixes are very picky about who they're going to lean on in Mm -hmm. terms of their info. Mm -hmm. And there's a process that goes with that. Yes. So the one 
Part of me that I will say resonates with the five is that I am a scientist, somebody who very much values credible info, and I have very high standards for where I go for that. There's a quote by Brene Brown when in her book, Daring Greatly, where she talks about how if you're in the cheap seats, I don't want to hear it. I'm not going to accept your feedback. I'm not going to trust you with any information unless you are in the arena next to me fighting and getting your ass kicked right alongside me. That is what's amplified between the the eight and the six is having a very small circle of trusted confidants. You know, I will listen to anything that I hear, but I will take it with a grain of salt unless you're somebody that I really, really trust. And it takes a long time to build that rapport and to build that level of I will trust you implicitly. And then even then, sometimes my thinking center kicks in of like, I will trust what you're saying, but I also need to do my own research and find my own facts behind that. There's a kind of wariness. There's like an eyeballing them sideways and just saying they've got to earn that trust in a way over and over. (laughs) Yes. And I think a lot of it too is that's where my thinking center and my... and you know, my, my head center and my body center come together. I can logically understand where a lot of information comes from, but if it doesn't resonate with anything that I've experienced, I have a very hard time trusting that is credible. So there's a lot of things that I've experienced. There's a lot of things that even if I haven't experienced this specific situation, maybe I've experienced an emotion or a feeling similar to what that emotion or feeling is in there experience. Mm -hmm. But if it's just something that I literally cannot relate to at all, it's very hard for me to internalize it and to trust it. That's, I think, why I have a really hard time with fives is because, and this is not just me hating on fives. I know that I don't tend to be very complimentary to them. It's just because, (laughs) and that's not intentional. It's not because I don't like fives. I just have a really hard time with them because there is no part of me that ever wants to withdraw or shy away or stonewall anything I always want to be open to things and to dig deeper to things and I would so much rather be open to something and have it hurt me than to shut it off and so when I encounter the people that want to have that cerebral experience and internalize things I can't relate to that in any form Mm -hmm. I want to understand it but I also want to relate in my body and my experience to it and so I think that's really where you want to My connect six, with it. You want to interact yeah, with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I want to feel it. And so even if it is logical thinking information, it is something that is credible. It comes from whether it's actual information or it is emotional information or it's interpersonal relationships or whatever it may be. I need to be able to internalize it and relate it to something that I know or that I've experienced in order to believe it. How about heart like a two? How would your emotional center line up more with two? I know you said you had a harder time with that because you saw three and four as well. But why did you land on two? What you're doing is you're asking yourself, do I use my emotional center like a two uses theirs? I know I use my emotional center like a four because I'm taking it deep inward. I'm going Mm -hmm. in, in, in. And it's my particular gift is there is no internal feeling I cannot navigate and name and then express outward. But I do not know what you're feeling. (laughs) So twos, emotional center, they're tied to other people's needs. They know what other people need. They have a, a funny sense for it, but don't know what they need themselves. Does that make sense? So the reason I'm asking is because you are very (laughs) four-ish. Yeah, you remind me of me. But I think for the most part, especially if I'm in a healthy place, that I go toward what other people need because Ah, as an eight, I already feel like I'm in tune with what I need and I can deal with that later. I I kind of intrinsic, I have that same feeling of there's nothing that I can't withstand or can't name. So therefore it's not as important 
because I can deal with that on my own. You know, I'm sure if my therapist ever hears this, she's going to roll her eyes. But because that's, you know, so that we've talked about is like me automatically going toward what can I do for other people? How can I keep other people happy? Especially in times of strife, it's like I understand myself so well. And I understand my own needs, my own boundaries, my emotions so well that I'm gravitated toward helping other people understand their needs, emotions, whatever, so that way we can figure out some way to, what's the word I'm looking for, to reconcile that in the middle. It's yeah, like, I know where is, I stand. Let me help you figure out where you stand. And then we can figure out how to deal with this. I think it was y'all that posted something about we forget ourselves. And I felt like that really resonated with me because, like I said, I feel like I know that so well that I just put it on the back burner. It's not that I don't know what I need. It's that I don't feel like it's as important in that moment to deal with because I'm strong enough or whatever word you want to ascribe to that. I'm strong enough to deal with that later on my own terms. In that process, I tend to forget myself. You know, in my last relationship, I did a lot of that. And it was a lot of issues that really had nothing to do with me. And I was bending over backwards to try to justify things in my own head and figure out what I could change. And it took me a very long time to realize it's nothing that I'm doing or not doing for him. It's because this is not evenly met in this relationship. There's nothing that I could have done differently for this to have a different outcome. And that took a really, really long time because I internalized a lot of that as like, well, my feelings are my own shit to deal with. And that has nothing to do with him. So instead, I'm going to try to do whatever he needs me to do Mm -hmm. in order to make this work. Eight with the two, they're loving and protective. It brings in a vulnerability to this eight, even if they won't acknowledge it openly. Instead, they will take someone under their wing in order to help them out in a manner that they wish they would receive help. Their focus can be on acquiring power in order to attract love. They have a bit of a romantic bent. Words associated with eight with a two might be, and here's the the negatives, but here we go. Controlling, intrusive, taking charge of others' well-being, big mama bear energy, (laughs) overbearing, rejecting your own vulnerable needs. (laughs) Does this sound familiar? (laughs) So spot on. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so here's eight with a six. This eight will be permeated by a sense of belonging. They'll use their power to make sure that they don't display vulnerability. They're a highly intelligent, skeptical eight. They can be a whistleblower because of their inherent mistrust of the systems, family and community oriented. They can be paranoid about being controlled or manipulated by people. Mm -hmm. And words associated with them might be reactive, counterphobic, pushing, fighting for truth, honor, skeptical, accusing, and outspoken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, both of those are pretty accurate. I think I identify more with the 8-2, but definitely a little bit with the 8-6. Did any of the wording in there stand out to you? All of it. It was, yeah. <laughs> even even the negative things, if I'm being honest with myself, I feel like are very, very accurate. Yeah. Even since I was a teenager, before I knew any of this stuff, I was described as the mom friend. Like, I want to take care of everybody. But even in some of the negatives of what the mom friend does, which is like, I know what's best for you. <laughs> Listen to me. I know what's best for you. Take my advice. And of course, I don't take my own damn advice, but I want everybody else to take my advice. <laughs> So does this lead to conflict around Mm -hmm. that your drive to help people and save them your way? A little bit. It used to. I've become a lot more self-aware of it. And like I said, that effort to meet people where they're at. I feel like I have a very clear vision of the entire field where I can see where each path leads. And I can see which path is exactly the best way to get you where you say you want to go. 
And if you say you want to go here, let's take X, Y, Z steps and I'm going to help get you there. But you need to have the drive and the integrity to do it yourself. Yeah. And that's where I met with a lot of pushback. Do you lose interest when they're not up for the challenge? I don't lose interest. I get frustrated. But and then I stay even and harder keep- and that causes okay. even more conflict. And so I'm kind of straddling this line between, especially in times of conflict where other people may feel like you're trying to change me versus me saying, no, I'm trying to hold your hand and walk with you there. I'm trying to guide you there. And if you stop your feet in the mud and you don't walk, it's going to feel like I'm trying to force you because I'm pulling on your arm. But that was your choice to stop in the mud. And so that's where I run into hot water. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to hold other people accountable to their own thoughts and actions. So they yeah, they kind of paint a picture of this tri type as trying to haul people along and they don't want to go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of my really best friends is a five. And she had said one time I had gotten frustrated at a process and she was like, Sam, you have to like trust this process. And I was, there's literally no such thing. And she was like, you know how, when you drive, you drive 80 miles an hour, even if it's on side streets. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, that's how you drive through life. You see point A, point B, you want the (laughs) fastest way to get there. And it doesn't matter what happens in between. It doesn't matter if you pass the most beautiful view you've ever seen your direction and your directive is to get from point A to point B and you are going to get there by any means necessary. Not necessarily harmful means, but you're not really interested in the minutia or the the extraneous stuff along that way. And she was like me, I want to stop and smell the roses. If there's a food place I want to try along that way, I'm going to go try it. If there's a park, I'm going to let my dog run around. And she's like, that is, you know, really the difference between the way that we kind of live our lives. And so I and think it, can, it can be a problem when you're trying to take somebody that wants to drive at 40 miles an hour. Exactly. And you grab their hand and you turbo speed them up to 80. Exactly. And, and they're not interested in that. It Precisely. Can, like be traumatizing. <laughs> precisely exactly and so that's my problem is I'm like I have this clear view I'm like here is how we get there let me get you there and they're like no there's no time to stop like we literally don't don't need to do this (laughs) I am a really deep intense person that if I see like if I have a goal for myself and it's it's more of an abstract goal in terms of personal growth as opposed to I want to get this promotion or this material thing or whatever I am like I'm gonna put my head down I'm gonna do the dirty work I don't mind the dirty work if I know it's gonna get me to a good place so therefore I'm gonna do it And it's really hard for me when people are like, I want to get to this place. And I'm like, that requires dirty work. And they're like, "Mm, I don't want to do the dirty work. I'm like, you're weak. Just do it. (laughs) I'm like, these are the steps to get there. You got to do it. (laughs) Do you relate to overgiving? Yes. And doing it for a bit of a, there's like a motivation in there. Yes. And that's why you do it. Yes. I do that in, in literally everything. Like, it's not even like a, like a one example. Like, I do that in everything. I, I even had this conversation with my therapist the other day saying that, like, part of my identity is being a giver. I'm used to giving more than I receive in every sense of the word. Yeah. And so it actually caused me some discomfort in my relationship because I'm not used to being taken care of. I'm not right. used to people not hesitating at my emotions or at my depth or at my intensity. And they want to give to me just as much as I want to give to them. And so I told her, I feel like this dynamic is off because the identity that I'm used to having in in different interpersonal relationships is to be the one that gives constantly and never needs anything in return because I don't want to be seen as needy. I was going to say, do you feel like your giving is a bit of a mask? Like you're hiding behind? Mm Mm-hmm. 
you're giving yeah it's it's partially a mask because I don't want to be seen as needy and I want yeah. to be seen as the altruistic giver but I think yeah. a lot of it too is I just genuinely really like doing it and that's when I feel the most authentic is when I'm doing things and giving of myself in an altruistic way to benefit other people without expecting reciprocity and so especially if I'm in a different place, that overgiving serves as a mechanism to try to get those warm fuzzies again and, and be like, all right, now I'm back to doing good. I'm right. back to being healthy when it's not necessarily serving me well. <laughs> so there's a few words that they associate with the tri-type and then just tell me which of them stands out. You are cynical, dutiful, loyal, helpful. So we know helpful. We got that covered. But do you relate to the cynical or yes. the dutiful? Yeah. Yes. So tell me about what does that look like being cynical? I don't want to say that I always assume that people have ulterior motives. You don't want to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. And I don't think that other people have ulterior motives. It's really hard for me to fully trust that people want what's in my best interest and are going to go to the same extent for me as I do for them. So because I am a giver, I don't feel any sort of guilt giving, but I'm very cynical and questioning about the amount to which I receive or how much they show up for me in return. But I'm very, are you going to show up for me? And yes. if you do show up for me, why are you doing this? Yes. I'm not used to it. <laughs> yes. So it's kind of, it kind of put people in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Even in my current relationship, I was like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And he was like, how do I freaking show you that I'm not just going to like walk out the door any second? Cause that's what you're acting like. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's what usually happens. How about duty? Like, do you relate to being dutiful? Yes. I relate to making a lot of things my responsibility and then holding myself to those responsibilities and accountabilities, even if it's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. This is I, probably my biggest toxic <laughs> trait is yes. I'm that person in a group project that will be like, nobody ever helps me. I have to do it myself. And then I let other people help me. I'm like, you're doing it wrong. Let me do it. I'll get all of you A's. And <laughs> then once people are in, though, they're in, eh? Yes incredibly loyal yes yeah Yeah. once you're in you're in once I'm into you I'm into you we are you know bound unless something seriously bad happens going back to that that core fear of being innate like if you betray me if you lie to me if you do anything to betray that trust that I've imparted to you you're done and I have no problem cutting ties very easily if it gets to that point so when you look at these triads what you find is that you are what they'd call a double rejection type So that means that you are twice as likely to defend against rejection by offering a service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Rather than giving your your heart. (laughs) So there's like a double defending there. Yeah. Um, Another thing they say is you are double compliant. And what that means is that you are extra loyal and dutifully committed to something. And you're extra likely to struggle with black and white thinking. You would get quite committed to a way of thinking. It's all about like aligning. And so once you're aligned, pretty hard to move you out of it. Yes and no. Um, I think that's where my head center kicks in. Okay. That's where my six kicks in. If I align myself with something or I commit myself to something, it's because I've already done so much research that backs it that I can defend anything that you throw at me. However, if new evidence pops up, If I discover something new that I didn't know before and that makes more sense to me or it seems to hold more weight or credibility, I have no problem switching to that. I'm not bad at seeing nuance and gray area and deliberating in between those to figure out what I think is best and then defending that with my whole heart. Okay, and this one will make you laugh. 
I already know oh, it's true about oh, you. Oh. I don't care what you say. Uh oh. Um, it says you're double reactive. <laughs> <laughs> I also am double reactive. So yeah. it says that you're just extra likely to react strongly mm-hmm. <laughs> to anything, really. Yeah. And you will probably vocalize it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it just means that you're going to add energy to a conflict rather yeah. than like take away energy. So what is it? What is it like to be a double reactive type? Um, it feels like the character anger from Inside Out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like the lever pushes and just flames shoot out of my head. And, it has... <laughs> and it's doubly bad because I'm a redhead. No, I struggle with that so much. I react and I want to take action so fast. And I have a very hard time just sitting in things and letting them simmer before I figure out what the best method of action is. I'm like, mm-hmm. nope. We're going to go right now. We're going to fix this, especially in arguments that one um, ex-partner that I was talking about, he was a five. And that's why I had a really hard time because in any sort of conflict, he wanted to take time to process and think about things and would refuse to look at the emotional side of things. And so we, we would never fight. And I was like, I need to fight. I need to talk through this. I need to process through this. I need to fight. Like, stay here and fight with me. Not because, and, and I know that that's a very eight thing to do, but it w- and it's not even because I wanted to argue. It was because I'm like, let's get this conflict out of our bodies. Yes, exactly. Let's put it in words, get it out on the table. We can sort through all this shit while it's on the table, mm-hmm. but we can't do that when it's in our heads or when we don't know what the other person is thinking. And so I am very reactive and I'm very much like, I'm somebody that I want to act and react very quickly, mm-hmm. which is yep. sometimes really great and sometimes not so much reactivity isn't my favorite I, I don't like that it feels like I'm enslaved to it I don't like it mm-hmm. so I was just wondering how you felt about it I don't know that I feel enslaved to it it just feels like a very primal instinct that I'm like you know what I'm an evolved human being like, I, I should be able to like not just go full caveman in like well, that's what I mean seconds. I just wish I had more control over it right yeah if we love control it's the opposite of that and I don't like it I know we can choose what to do with it but I don't like that I don't give it permission to show up in my body but there it is Hmm. and I hate too. like I said one of my one of my really good friends is a three and she is a really good mirror back to me and so like anytime this happens and I'll like go off and I'll vent to her and she's like she's like 72 hour rule and I'm like, no, I don't have 72 hours. <laughs> Most people get still the 24 bothers me hour 72 rule. hours. Then you can take action on it. And I was like, don't give me that shit. I don't have 72 hours. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of irony to the difference between when I was first interviewed and identified really as 826 versus now when I'm much more in that like 846 kind of category. I think pre-pandemic, I was a lot less healthy in my core type than I thought that I was. And as we know, you know, in stress, the eight usually goes to a five and in health, they rise to a two, but as a social eight, and as somebody who really focuses a lot of that eighthood on my people and the people around me and my support systems and stuff like that, I think that in my unhealthier levels, I tended to gravitate toward the needs of everyone else around me before myself. And that was what really gave me the confidence and the like reassurance that things were okay okay and allowed me to continue in my eighthood in whatever behaviors kind of transpired and then during the pandemic you know i've done a shit ton of therapy and introspection and really most importantly learned how to feel all of my feelings and now that i have done that i am just 150 percent intensity all the time i just want to like sit and feel everything so intensely now that i'm not 
afraid of it. And so it really has like shifted a lot into that 846 because, you know, no matter what I'm feeling, as an 8, I feel it with every fiber of my being. But as a 4, I want to really perseverate on all of those emotions. I'm like the human version of being sad and listening to a sad playlist all the time, <laughs> but no matter what I'm feeling. And I'm still learning kind of how to navigate away from letting the intensity of those emotions, because I do feel it so strongly, not dictate my mood for the entire day. Because once I get in there and I start really leaning into those emotions, it can become fairly overwhelming. But I think since I've started to learn how to like actually recognize and feel them, I've realized how much of an ocean my emotional landscape really is and how like I was afraid of the intensity for a long time. And now that I lean into it, I'm just kind of like swimming in the waters for fun and working actually more like pulling myself out of the waters when it's appropriate. And like I said, as a counter type, as a social eight, being somebody that's more drawn toward other people and being in relationship and community and groups with other people, I find that, you know, tapping into that four and really like leaning into that intensity, leaning into that emotional landscape has made me so much more empathetic toward other people because A, now I know how to, how to go inward into myself to explore all of that and my eight strength allows me to help other people navigate that because so many people are so scared to navigate that emotional landscape and dip into those waters just thinking that they're going to be too deep to be able to handle and so I'm able to help alleviate and assuage some of those fears for other people around me in order to help them even more. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor.